Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. His newest book is Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. The religious right taught America to misread the Bible, argues Wilson Hartsgrove. Christians have misused scripture to consolidate power, stoke fears, and defend against enemies. In Revolution of Values, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove explores how religious culture wars have misrepresented Christianity at the expense of the poor and how listening to marginalized communities can help Christians hear God's call to love and to justice in the world. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Good to be with you again. You've written a new book, Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. It's it's interesting. You talk about a book in the intro that by James Davidson Hunter, the culture wars that I think like doesn't get talked about as much anymore. It was really interesting. You started the book that way. Cause that book, I mean, Hunter is still talked about kind of, but that book has kind of dropped out of public discourse and maybe because his thesis is now so obvious that nobody has to talk about it. (laughs) But you, can you say a little bit like how you found yourself caught in the culture? Because you you came from an evangelical background, and I think you still self-identify that way. And yet, yeah. politically, you're not where most evangelicals are. And so it's interesting how you found your story in that book and, and, and how you're kind of living it out still, uh, yeah. trying to yeah. transcend that problem. I was born in 1980, and um, I've realized as I've kind of come to understand where I, you know, walked into the story that I live in, that my birth was announced um, the Sunday after Ronald Reagan was elected, you know, for the first time. That was the first. Maybe your birth was the reason it was morning in America. (laughs) Well, that that was, uh, I I don't think that's what anybody was thinking. I think (laughs) what strikes me in our current context is that that was the first Make America Great Again campaign, right? That was the slogan. And Paul Manafort was working with Reagan on that campaign. So um, at that point, what uh, Hunter called the culture wars were new, right? And there was a huge, uh, what I've since learned is that there was a huge amount of energy and money being invested in convincing people like the Baptist church I was born into that there was a, a liberal agenda that was waging a war against us and that we had to fight back. And um you know, I've tried to be honest about the fact that I grew up in that and really um, internalized a lot of it as a young person. Uh, but I came to realize that that on several levels, uh, first spiritually and then increasingly in terms of community and our shared common life, that that, that kind of uh, war mentality really is a dead end. So I wanted to start this book by talking about the fog of war. You know, that's... Um, von Clausewitz phrase about, you know, how when you're in war, you, there are things you can't see, there are things you miss. And uh, I was born into a war and trained up as a foot soldier in a battle that I think um, has led us into a fog that is uh, 
really endangering the whole earth at present. So that's what this book's about, the, the need for a revolution of values in light of that, the way values were shaped by that culture war. Yeah, it's interesting when you were talking about the the newness of it. Like, I feel like most people don't know that, like, this even the Southern Baptist Church for the first couple of years after Roe versus Wade yeah. was pro-choice. Uh, and I'm not saying that yeah. that was the right or the wrong position, but yeah. but now it seems really not an advertised position anymore. Right, right. like, <clears throat> but some of this was like, right? Isn't there this legacy where people like Jerry Falwell and the more majority kind of used the abortion issue also because some of the, their their concern was states' rights and segregation academies and yeah. things like this. And so, but that sounds immoral to say, hey, we're, we're trying That's to right. do this. So yeah. you get this issue like abortion and you've got a whole tradition, the Roman Catholic Church that's always been against it. And you kind of borrow some of their ideas and you switch up. And then it's amazing that that galvanized, right? A whole group of people around an issue that they didn't even know they cared about. Yeah, it is amazing. And if you look at it, it's complicated. It took a long time. Like this is 40 years we're talking about. And I, I think it's really important for people today, especially people who are agonizing over the role of white evangelicals, you know, in public life and the, you know, 80 or 81% that voted for Donald Trump and that seems to be, you know, sticking with him. Um, I think it's important to realize that it took a long time to build this coalition. It took a lot of money. It took a lot of organizations coordinating their efforts. And that's part of the story I wanted to tell in the book that this, this is not a given, right? We, I, I have this, I'm sitting at my writing desk right now. I have this quote, I keep uh, pinned on the desk here from James Baldwin that says, we made the world we're living in and we have to make it over. I think people forget this, right? We we did this. And the we here is actually very uh, specifically uh, moneyed interests that were very concerned about the way that the gains of the civil rights movement, particularly in terms of um, expanding democracy, threatened their power, right? So the, the the biggest legislative win of the civil rights movement is the Voting Rights Act. Um, that is followed, of course, by the uh, passing in Congress, um, though it was never ratified, of the Equal Rights Amendment. And so this expansion of civil rights and women's rights um, really begins to threaten the balance of power. And like you were saying, it is clear looking back that the people who had maintained white male power by appealing explicitly to racism, realized that the cultural consensus had shifted. You couldn't, I mean, uh, George Wallace running for president in 68 made this clear, right? You couldn't, you couldn't go national with an explicitly racist language after the civil rights movement. Uh, But Nixon learned from Wallace's campaign and learned ways that he could employ a Southern strategy to build a coalition of white people um, uh, from the South to the suburb to the Sunbelt and that Southern strategy was very much, uh, by the time you got to the mid to late 70s, about appealing not to the racism, but to the religion of uh, white people. And so in so many ways, this you know, pro-life, pro-family values movement that begins with under Jerry Falwell's leadership, but really takes a long time to build because it, it wasn't, you know, it's not now and it, it wasn't feasible then for it to just be, you know, white Baptists in the South. They also needed Pentecostals. And so, you know, Pat Robertson comes on board. They needed these televangelism and radio networks that that, that built this coalition of people who really did come to narrate uh, a way of being faithfully Christian in public as necessarily Republican, and not just Republican in the classic sense, but necessarily um, uh 
uh, anti-government and yeah, isn't uh, Atwater? Is it Lee Atwater, the Republican strategist that said basically you figured out you couldn't use the N word and you couldn't say this, right. so, but what you can do is say big government's a problem because then the yeah. the implication is like you talk in the book about what Ronald Reagan did with the welfare queen. This one woman who I, I, NPR did a story about her. Uh, it, it was really interesting. She had this complicated story, and so Reagan made a mythology about her. Yeah, uh, that she basically the people were living high off the hog on welfare and the people were generally people of color that's implied. Right. And so there's a way where I mean, I'm not trying to impute motives. I mean, I would have said this, that you can kind of play up on the animus and use language that, that that is more sanitized. You say we're just against big government programs and these things, which the idea, and aside from the fact that most of the right, the recipients of this are often in red states. Yeah. But you kind of channel even the recipients of welfare to, to be angry at the other recipients of welfare. I mean, that's right. And you convince and you convince people that that's actually Christian, right? Uh, not, I mean, the the animus is there, and you affirm that in people. But you also say that um, government is threatening not only your way of life but your religion. And so they begin to say, you know, we don't worship government; we worship God, right? And um, and if and if you want to be faithful in public, if you want to vote your values, then you vote for this agenda that, as a matter of fact, is counter to the uh, biblical justice that echoes from you know the, the the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation, right? If if you think about the priorities of Scripture. Right, God is concerned about the poor, the uh, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. You know, the 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 folks who are on welfare. <laughs> you know, that you were just talking about like that that, that and and a, a care for creation. Right, that's a mandate from the beginning of Scripture. Like these are, I mean, you could you could talk about different ways to flesh that out politically in different times and in different systems. But these are the core concerns. These are the values of Scripture. And as a matter of fact, a values movement develops, and again, it took a long time to build it, but it develops to convince Christians to vote against all of the basic values of Scripture. (laughs) That's why we need a revolution of values. One of the things you pointed out in the book, too, I thought that was just a great insight that I I don't think I'd ever thought of before. You said that you're not going to find a single instance of the word vote in the Bible, but voice is the same root in Hebrew, and and that's all throughout the Bible, that God... Wanting to hear the voices. I mean, I think of um story with Hagar and, and with Ishmael, yeah. and he hears her cry. I mean, this 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 mm-hmm. power of this, you know, here you have this like complicated story about the, the Abraham, who's the father of a, you know, a redemptive family, but also has all sorts of systemic power issues and and, yeah. and and is trying to sort of deal with like systemic issues in his own household between his wife and this and Hagar and and, and she cries out. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And God hears those cries. If we take the story of Scripture seriously, those cries have a priority, right? This this is what God says over and over again. I've I've heard the cries of my suffering people, and God doesn't get behind the established order of Egypt or of Israel or of the Roman Empire. God gets behind the cries of the people who are being crushed by the established order over and over again. Uh, and the revolution of values that I'm working for in the world and that you know I see as necessary for the moment we're living in 
is one that lifts up those voices. And so this book really tries in our own context to to listen to the people who are crying out and to hear what are the injustices that they're suffering and what does the story of Scripture look like to them, right? Because when you read the Bible again, from the perspective of the immigrant family that's been separated, if you read it from the perspective of people who don't have access to health care, of people whose uh, native lands are being destroyed by copper mining in this country, over and over again, the, the, the scriptures come to life when you read them in, the, in those real contexts that are much more like the context of the people who wrote the scriptures than, uh, than what we try to do with it in terms of holding on to power. You still identify as evangelical, do you? Sure, I'm an evangelical <laughs> in the sense that I understand that word to be rooted in the evangel of Scripture, the good news, and to be a tradition in America of people who have prioritized a uh, a personal experience with uh, of Jesus and of life with God and a kind of uh, democratic notion that anyone can have that experience and can then work in the world to live out a, a, a biblical vision of in public life. That was at the heart of the abolitionist struggle. It was part of the early labor movement of uh, women's suffrage. Um, much of the social gospel, frankly, was evangelical in the sense of you know, the people who were uh, living it out believed it was good news for all people. And uh, I think the way in which we've tried to uh, um, divide things, um, again, along the culture war lines of the sort of traditional versus the progressive, um, it, it, in some ways keeps us from seeing the radical roots of the evangelical tradition in this country. So, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an evangelical um, in the broadest sense of that word. And I think we have to recognize that many black, brown, and white evangelicals are not represented by what the religious right has tried to claim as a evangelical identity. It's really much more a white Christian nationalist identity. I, I, I mean, as I was reading this book, I think, because I'm, I'm reading with this question in my mind, like, gosh, this guy is seems to have like all these different political and ethical values from what most people would say, at least most white evangelicals, right? And of course, there are lots of non-white evangelicals just in North America that wouldn't fit this. But but one of the things I get <clears throat> as I'm reading it, I'm like, well, I think what's still evangelical about this guy is the way he re- he loves the Bible. There there are certain kind of Christian traditions that would talk about values in a way that wouldn't. I mean, you're it, it, it's moving. You're you're um, you have a piety of the of, for the Word of God that's really moving. I mean, you don't just smooth over it. I mean, you you it's clear that tradition is. The Bible's still important to you. I'm offended. I'm offended, not by you, but I'm offended by the way. <laughs> you can be offended by me. <laughs> I'm offensive, brother. I'm offensive. I'm offended by the way people who claim to care about the Bible that I love, that I've studied and that I've read, you know, with people for whom we really do believe that this is a, a, a living text. You really believe the letter's genuine. I believe it's real and, and God breathed. And the people who use it in such a terrible way to justify things that aren't on, not only they're unbiblical, they're just plain wrong. You know, ripping families apart. And Jeff Sessions is going to get up and say Romans 13 somehow justifies that. Good God. You know, if, if that's your political position, you can hold that position. But don't claim my Bible says that. That's offensive to me as a person of faith. You know, what's so interesting. I, I, did, I had a guest a couple weeks ago on the podcast, uh, Scott McKnight, who uh, 
wrote a book called. Oh, yeah, he knows his Bible too. Oh, he's yeah, and he reading Romans backwards, and he made more sense of that text in this book than I've ever heard anyone make sense of this. This this you know, pay your taxes. The and he was talking about how it's all about this multicultural tension between the strong and the weak, and the strong mm-hmm. party that are a little more open to multicultural ideas and mostly Gentile, and the Jewish Christian party that's a little more um, hanging on to some of Israel's cultural values. And he argues that this. Romans 13 is a thing about actually trying to um, make space uh, for uh, a wider hearing of the Christian gospel. And so that, that some of the kind of weaker parties sort of, um, you know, the roots of the revol- the, the, anti- the the violent sort of approach to Rome that Jesus I mean, Jesus doesn't like the imperialism, but nor does he like the sort of antagonistic, violent, you know, mm-hmm. mirror of it. And McGregor mm-hmm. argues that the whole Romans 13 thing is about trying to make a way beyond antagonisms. It's not about mm-hmm. sort of blanket, yeah. uh, uh, you know, legitimization for everything the state does. He says actually a tr- an appeal to get beyond kind of antagonisms that are going to ruin the Christian movement. Uh, yeah. I n- I've never that's heard anybody a, make an argument like that. That's a good reading of it in the context. It was written. Yeah. But it's misused consistently in our context because Romans 13 was reread by slaveholders, right? It it has a particular history in the United States, too. It was reread by slaveholders as a way of saying that, you know, even though this appears to be wrong and unethical based on basic human values, uh, that Romans 13 says that you should submit to the governing authorities. And since the governing authorities say it's okay to own other people, then Christians are fine owning other people. I mean, that's straight out of the slaveholder religion that developed here in the United States. So that, that I want to grapple with the ways we have learned to misread the Bible. And uh, this book, The Revolution of Values, is really about inviting people issue by issue, right? As we, as, as we focus, you know, right now on how can we live out our values in public life, let's talk about immigration. Let's talk about voting rights. Right. Let's talk about women's rights. Let's talk about uh, care for the creation. And let's say, how could we read the Bible differently if we read it from the perspective of the people who are suffering because of the distorted moral narrative we've inherited from the religious right? That's what this book tries to do on each issue. It tries to it tries to say how we learn to misread the Bible and how we could read it differently if we would sit down with the people who've been most impacted by this distorted narrative. You talk a lot about Christian nationalism. in the book and, and how it's a heresy. I remember in Christianity Today years ago, Mark Knoll had this this great historian had this kind of Q&A question. Somebody wrote in and asked if the American Revolution is biblical. Mm. And he looked at Romans 13 and he said, well, I mean, a tax rebellion against a Christian king would not. He said, and he said the only people in the colonies that he thinks could have made an argument were slaves. Uh-huh. That the, the, the only people in the colonies who actually probably could have said we should take up arms are the slaves. But that we that you know, I'm the, he's like, I'm not saying you know we we should you know go back to England or this or that. But but this nationalist kind of rhetoric, right? That it's like Jesus was with the founding fathers, right? With the Declaration of Independence, and the, there's even paintings of this, right? The founding fathers with Jesus in the middle. Oh yeah. I mean, these are um, and it's not right. You're not arguing that you can't love the United States and love your state or love this. It's just it, it, you got to just understand that, that, that that's an, an idol if it takes the place of, of, of God or the place God should have in the heart and the imagination, right? That's right. And it's actually not loving your neighbors in your place. Um, the, the Christian nationalism that has been cultivated by this movement that 
I'm describing in this book, uh, it's it's often called the religious right, but I, I think on a global scale now, it is helpful to look at it as a movement of religious nationalism because this is a global movement now, right? It's happening around the world. It's happening in Brazil. It's happening in Israel. And there are uh, strong men who are being propped up by religious nationalists from you know India to here uh, who who are undermining um, democracy and undermining um, the systems that we have that while imperfect, I think uh, have the you know best hope of uh, creating some justice for people in the communities where we live. So the history of Christian nationalism and the way it's been cultivated in our communities and the way it's really been sold to white Christians in America, uh, is something that I think it's crucial for people to understand, because as you were saying earlier, so many people have been convinced that this is the godly thing to do, even though it's hurting them, right? We look over the last 50 years, and the the increase in inequality in this country is pretty overwhelming, right? Um, we, we actually don't even tell the truth in our reporting on this most of the time, because we use old federal poverty statistics. I mean, we use an old calculus that is still applied to today's data, that usually says there are about 39 million poor people in this country. But as a matter of fact, if you use newer models, uh, what it actually you know means to be poor, uh, 140 million people in this country uh, are one emergency away from not being able to pay their bills next month. It's, it's almost half of the country, right? And that's one way of looking at the growing inequality that is the result of policy decisions pu- pushing back on the expansion of rights in the civil rights movement that has been facilitated by this pro so-called pro-life pro-family movement. If a pro-life movement is as a matter of fact killing people and killing democracy, at some point I think we have to say is this really pro-life? And that's that's what I'm asking in this book. You, you bring up an author a scholar, Kevin Cruz from Princeton, who talks yeah. about this, has written about this <clears throat> speech that was given. I forget who gave the speech, but the, at the National Manuf- Manufacturers. Like, James Byfield is his name. Yeah. And, and it, now, this is amazing because, right, the, the populist evangelicalism of yesteryear, the early 20th century, late 19th century, you know, people like William Jennings Bryan, all sorts, these people were, did not, we're not cozy with capitalism. I mean, the, the, this, mm-hmm. this, I mean, we could say, Good or bad about that kind of evangelical populism, like any movement. But it, what was what was what seems obvious to evangelicals today was hardly obvious to them. I mean, the the, the, the kind of the industrial revolution and and the increased wealth brought a lot of oppression and inequality, and they were really sheepish about it. And and, yeah. and and you talk about it, how Cruz chronicles that all of a sudden you had these evangelicals that figured out how to like convince all these. Uh, captains of industry that, that that God was on their side and they should be on evangelical side. It's a, I mean, there's a remarkable artistry to this whole thing, right? Yeah. A dark and artistry, I think, but I mean, I, mean, I, yeah, I think Cruz's work is really important because it, it, uh, it shows how moneyed interests began to invest in this, right? This, this was a moment. Uh, Fifield's organization was called uh, spiritual mobilization and they were mobilizing people of faith to promote a kind of pro-capitalist Christianity at precisely the moment when most people, particularly poor people, were not trusting capitalism because the you know Great Depression had just uh, hurt everybody and they weren't going to trust any corporations that said, you know, you should trust them with the well-being of the nation. Uh, and so they started paying preachers 
that, that's what they did through spiritual mobilization. They invested in an organization that would promote a pro-capitalist Christianity through, you know, a magazine and through these preaching competitions where they would actually pay a prize for the, you know, most pro-capitalist sermon. And they, they, they began to create, and at that time, a very bipartisan. Paul would win that now. There's no way anybody could outpreach Paul White on that. <laughs> well, uh, maybe she has uh, gotten the official prize for the most pro-capitalist Christianity. It's a, you know, a position in the Trump White House. But at any rate, um, I think that um, seeing that that was an intentional effort and that it and that it worked and that it took you know time to build a coalition that did that is in many ways a, a, a model. I mean, that's happening in the 1930s. But uh, when you can then look at what happened in the late 1970s and into the 80s and 90s with organizations like the Moral Majority and the Christian Coalition and the you know uh, Faith and Freedom Coalition that exists now, that that's an increasingly expanding coalition that was created to shape a moral narrative that would um, prop up the white power that was challenged by the civil rights movement. It, you hang out with a lot of people that are, and I say this actually from firsthand experience because I know progressive religious people, Jews, uh, both religious and secular Jews, who have been at meetings you've had and and have been really inspired and told me about it. Like, do people because you're an evangelical? And you kind of still you're a, you're a son of the South. I mean, you kind of fit the bill. You're a white guy. You, you you have a Southern accent. You know the Bible. Do you find people coming up to you and asking you how can these evangelicals stay with Trump? Like, do people do they pull you aside and ask to for you to explain yeah. it? Because because they know you know and still have family and friend connections with sure. people that you come from the tradition. I mean, do you find yourself explaining to people outside the tribe? Like, yeah, all the time. What do you say? Well, uh, in some ways, this book is my longest answer. To that question. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I say, look, it's not insincere, right? People were in their churches, you know, believing what their mamas and daddies taught them to believe. And uh, folks started paying people like Jerry Falwell to pump this message, you know, into the the free literature, into their churches, the Christian and radio. Saying, there might be some insincerity among the kind of people that made it an industry, right? But what you're saying is a lot of the rank and file, there's, there, there's a sincerity. These are people that believe in the Bible and and believe in the power of religion, and you know we all we're all limited to how much we can think about things and process things. Yeah. People kind yeah. of gave them something ready made that sounded like it was sincere. That's right, and it said it was pro life. How can you be against life? <laughs> yeah, that's like when Rick uh, Rick Perry in that in that one uh, debate when they were I guess Michelle Bachman was pushing him because he he um, mandated the PVC vaccine and she was yeah. and this is too much government and he said well look first of all I hate cancer I'm like what a bold statement because you're, you're going to alienate the pro cancer crowd I mean there's got to be at least forty percent of the vote out there hey we're cancer lovers right we got overpopulation we got to you know. Yeah. How could you be against life? And I think, you know, strategically, that was brilliant. People who wanted to hang on to votes by appealing to uh, white folks appealed to their values, appealed to what people really do care about. So I don't blame a lot of people who've gone along with this, on the one hand, because um, they were lied to by people who were using what's best in our tradition. And on the other hand, because, frankly, 
a lot of uh, a lot of people just gave up the field. There have not been a whole lot of people who've been out there teaching uh, a pro-justice, broad fusion coalition vision to poor white people in America. We have not invested very much in that. I'm part of the poor people's campaign today because it's one of the few movements I know that is investing in going to Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia and, you know, wherever else there are poor white folks who are Christian and who, you know, in many places, the only community centers that still exist in these hollowed out areas is the local church and going to the places that we want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about how Jesus cares about you and your neighbors. And we want to talk about how, frankly, you know, the way you're living looks a lot like how black folks are living down in the Mississippi Delta. It looks a lot like how, you know, uh, uh, farm workers are living in places that we visit and how the people who say they're representing your values are making a ton of money and holding on to power off of keeping you in their camp, but they're not doing much to help you. You make an interesting point there, because I think that the late 20th century saw some evangelical leaders like a kind of... um, Tony Campolo or Ron Sider and Jim Wallace, but often, and they did great work, but oftentimes they did a lot of preaching to the choir, like kind of going to other evangelicals that generally were a little bit educated, a little frustrated with some of the stuffy orthodoxies. And it was great because they built resources and, but, but you're right. I, very few evangelicals outside of the, the conservative political box actually have gone to the constituency of the religious right, right? The, 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 the working class sort of poor constituency, the white constituency said, Hey, we're for you. I mean, that's, I mean, you, it's sad. I'm, I'm, I'm sad, but that's, um, I'm sad that that's, there's not a bigger tribe that's doing that. Yeah. Well, and I have to thank, I really have to thank my black mentors for teaching me this. You know, I remember John Perkins saying to me, I, I was at his house in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and he said, look around this state. This state is full of poor white people. Who is the champion for poor white people in this state? This is a black man, right? Who was nearly killed by white people in the 1960s when he was, you know, working for civil rights, and he wanted to know where the champion. Ann Atwater was my teacher here in North Carolina, and she became friends with the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. And she said, "Nobody's standing up for those people. That's why they joined the Klan." Mm-hmm. So it's it's black people who've actually taught me to love the white people who raised me. Mm-hmm. And in so many ways, I've learned as someone who, you know, um, has a little space as a preacher and a Bible teacher, uh, part of my job to love white people is to tell them the truth, not only about what the Bible says, but about the people who have been lying to them. I mean, I I don't hate these people, but Ralph Reed is lying. And I'll, and I'll talk to Ralph Reed about that personally. I'll talk to him about it in do, front do, of anybody. Do you know him personally, Ralph? I, I reach out to him. Uh, he's not much interested in this conversation. But but no, I, I have been reaching out for years to everybody because like, I Have also, you ever had a personal conversation with Ralph Reed? Like, not in person, no. We've written back and forth to each other. How but, does that go when you write back and forth? Like, what is – like, how does he engage you? That's really interesting to me. Like, because he's – you know, he's one of the he's the guy that helped start the, in the 80s. Right? The moral majority he was the guy. He was the guy with the slick hair and the nice suits. And like, yeah. what does he respond? How does he write back to you? What does he say? Well, of course, he believes he's right. 
right? We all believe we're right, right? I, I always say, I, like, I, you know, about 95% of the things I think are wrong. I just don't know which ones they are. Like, we always think yeah. Yeah. we're right, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, at the end of the day, the the, the, the people who but have... A person, that, what does he say? I mean, does he say, Jonathan, hey, thanks. I'd like to have coffee with you sometime. Or are <laughs> you a brother? I mean, because, I, I mean, you know, is there... Excuse me, about specific things. For example, I, you and I talked about this book I wrote on... Uh, Slaveholder religion, yeah, and the way a, a fantastic book. The way it's echoed through our past, and so when that book came out, we had an exchange. And what he wanted to say is, he wanted to say, you know, I was the guy in the '90s who was talking about building a rainbow coalition. He actually did. He, he told white conservatives that they needed to build a rainbow coalition because he was looking at the demographics and he was saying, look, if we don't get some black and brown folks in this coalition, we, we're not going to win long term. So he wants to say, I'm not racist because I've always seen that we need black and brown people to be part of what we're doing too. And what I wanted to say to him was, well, look, if you don't listen to the agenda that has come out of that community, then it doesn't matter how many people you buy off or win into your coalition. Uh, The reality is, you know, if you're convincing black and brown people to work for racist policies, that's still racism. Yeah. It's just like if we say, well, women can be CEOs now, but you're going to have to make a choice between being a mom and a CEO. We're not going to change the structure Welcome yeah. to the table. We'll let you participate in the old boy structure, but we're not going to let you change the structure. Is it kind of is, is what you're saying? He's saying, look, I wanted to get black and brown people in. We didn't want to change yeah. the structure, but if they could live in our tent, I was going to let them live in our tent. Certainly, yes, and uh, that's both cultural and it's in terms of policy, right? I mean, like at the end of the day, if we're going to talk about racism, I want to talk about policies. Like, what are the policies that are disproportionately impacting? Black and brown people, like why across every issue from healthcare to economic well-being to education, why do we still have essentially the same disparities we had 50 years ago? And that those are structural issues. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It seems to me that people that are making the kind of arguments you're making about structural inequalities, whether they're in the secular religious sort of um, 
left, for be- lack of a better term. And you're more complex than a leftist or something like that, but I'm just, you know, using simplistic language here. I think the point often in those communities is that racism is not just about intent and even primarily about intent. It's often about outcome. So like, so for, whereas for conservatives, if they say I didn't have an intention to be racist. So like, I just uh, voted to cut uh, all this aid to, uh, you know, certain constituent groups in Georgia because I'm a small government guy and I think our budget should be shrunk. Well, I, maybe you didn't personally try mm. to disproportionately f- affect people of color, but, but 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 don't you see there's sort of a system that you don't even have to try. The system works so well that if you <laughs> that you, that you, you can screw people yeah. of color without even trying. That's what's great about the racist system, right? You could so so right. so the intention right. kind of thing is is it seems like a, a a hurdle that because when people hear the term racism, it gets so moralized in the sense of like, well, th- then if I didn't, you know, if I like black people, I, I have a couple, I have black friends, I have this, then that, yeah. the, it, then the policy things or structural things to support that doesn't matter because I like, I, I know black people and I like them kind of. Yeah, I think Ibram Kendi's work on this is really helpful. Uh, he's giving people language to talk about this. He says, you know, given that we've inherited. 400 years of a racist system. The issue is not being not racist. The question is whether you're going to be anti-racist, right? To, to, to just say, I'm not racist. I don't you know, hold any animus or I don't have any ideas that you know people who are different from me are inferior to me. Uh, if in fact you've inherited an entire system that was built on white supremacy, on white people being in charge over black and brown people, then unless you're committed to being anti-racist, that is to restructuring the world that we live in in such a way that people have equal access and equal opportunity, then you're, you're, you're promoting a racist system. So his work on how to be an anti-racist, I think, is really helpful for people who are thinking and talking about this right now. You're, you're an evangelical. You still identify that. Have you, when was the last time you led somebody into a personal relationship with Jesus? Like prayed, because I think this is part of what this tradition has given, has reemphasized in Christianity. The faith uh, always has to be personal. It's never private, but it's got to be personal. You have to have this deep connection. It can't just be something that is in the water or something. You actually have to have a connection with the living God, which changes your heart and can change the world. Like, have you like have you talked with somebody over the past months or years and, and who was not a, 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 an observant religious person and you know help help them find Jesus as their savior? I think it's incredibly important to walk with people into deeper relationship with God, and uh, I do that every day. Uh, I believe that the way evangelizing other people. Uh, got framed as uh, getting them to close their eyes and bow their head and say an incantation. And everybody looks, right? I mean, people look. For our listeners, and we have a lot of listeners that don't live in this world. I mean, you're talking about like evangelical preachers will say, okay, I preach. With every head bowed and every eyes closed. closed. Raise your hand if you're giving something. Which is something I I thought we were supposed to be bold for Jesus or something. But you're going to make the commitment with no one looking. But then inevitably, right? the ordinary kids or the ordinary adults look and, and then yeah. and people are looking around to see who's raising their hand. Yeah. So I've, I've come to believe that that's a kind of transactional and, uh, uh, and actually anti evangelical way to sort of force people's hands from a position of power. So while I was trained in that and, um, certainly prayed that way with people, I, I don't have that prayer with people, uh, anymore. Uh, but 
I, I, I do deeply believe that my personal relationship with God and other people's personal relationship with God is a central issue in terms of what defines our lives. And uh, I want to talk to people about that, whether they're think whether they think they're Christian or and you talk to Jesus or right? or whatever. You still really believe that Jesus changed things on the cross and the resurrection, right? I mean, you talk to people personally about Jesus, still, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, to to be Christian is to believe that the world is not only created in God's love, but the world is fundamentally defined by the fact that God showed up and lived in a particular way and was willing to die out of love for all of us. And that when we killed God, God didn't stay dead. Like that's the resurrection. And that's a powerful thing. I don't think the power of that is fundamentally, um, you know, my ability to convince somebody else that I'm right and that they need to be like me, I think the power of that is believing that God is actually at work in the world. And that if you go out there and you get involved with people who, you know, who are trying to work for a better world for whatever reason it is, God is there and God shows up. And uh, I, for me, that's what evangelism is. Evangelism is going out, believing good news and trusting that that good news connects you with other people. In my adult life, I reconnected with reading Martin Luther several years ago. And I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and Luther has this essay, the a short called The Freedom of a Christian. And it's so powerful. He says, look, once you're accepted, no strings attached by the God of grace, you're Lord of all and servant of all. You're Lord of all because nobody can say you're a marginalized person or you need to make the 2.5 kid suburban dream thing to be accepted or righteous or nobody, nobody can take this away from you. You are no strings attached. And then you can be servant of all because you realize God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. And so you can look around and serve people with no strings attached because God's given you no strings attached. And I think that it's so, when I reread that, it's so profound, this kind of personal connection to Christ he talks about. He imagines, and Luther had some hangups, he was a man of his time, but he imagines it can have this, this working out in a way mm-hmm. that you can then so show this kind of no strings attached love, whether you get it back. Because I mean, sometimes he's arguing we're self-righteous, right? We help the lady across the street when someone's watching and when they're not. But he says, you know, when you know that you don't need to be self-righteous, you can really live into righteousness. You can actually really care for people. And I think that is so, I mean, I, I hear a lot of these kind of echoes in, in both of your books I've read, like this kind of liberation in Christ is not just a freedom from things, but it's a freedom for things. Yeah. And that we can grow, we can each of us grow closer to God and closer to the self that we need to become by getting involved with our neighbors in terms of who they really are and in terms of their longing to be free and to live in a just world. Um, for me, Dorotheus of Gaza, the desert father, you know, catches this out in, in, a, in a way that just kind of gives me a sort of geometry of faith. He says that it's as if the whole world is a circle and each of us are on its circumference and God is at the center. And Dorotheus says there's no way to move closer to God from any point on the circumference of a circle with, without moving closer to your neighbor who's also moving closer to God, right? That, that, that that's a trajectory towards the middle. And um, yeah, I, I don't always get it right, uh, but that's how I try to live. Um, and that's how I understand faith, that the journey with God, deeper with God, it's a journey of prayer, the journey of faith in our tradition, which is trusting, you know, 
what we believe, even though we don't see it. And in that journey of faith, we connect with other people. And um, and in learning from them and with them, uh, we, we find our way to God. I know lots of people that are would line up with a lot of your politics and values that you're talking about in this book who are, and I've had many of them on podcast who are not religious and who, and some of whom would let, they just, faith doesn't work for them. I mean, yeah. do, do you know people like that? Because I would guess, because I mean, you and William Barber are doing great work and, and a lot of people outside of religious communities have looked at you, what you're doing and found it very powerful. I mean, do you connect with people like that? And do they ask you about spirituality? Like people that are kind of yeah. aligned with your values, but have a tough time connecting to God? Like, do, do you, do you find those people in your work? Yeah, all the time. And one of the things, one of the points I'm trying to make with this particular book uh, is that there are actually more of those people because of the way religion has been misused. Um, now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, everyone is sort of, you know, secretly going to uh, agree with me if we get things right or something. Uh, you know, I, I'm not arguing that everyone's an anonymous Christian or something. But, uh, but I do think just in terms of demographics and looking at the data over the time, for the last uh, three decades, the number of people who don't affiliate with any religious tradition has doubled uh, each decade, according to the Pew's numbers, we usually call that group the nuns, not the uh, not Sally, sisters. not the Sally Field flying, no, not the sisters, but the people who say, you know, what is your religious affiliation? None, N-O-N-E. And uh, and as I interact with the so-called nuns out there in the world, uh, often they say, you know, uh, this is what I think religion should be about. You know, if this is what was preached at church. I would go to church, but uh, but I can't stand the way, you know, religion gets used to try to say that, you know, everything is about prayer in schools and whether a woman has the right to choose. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I run into those people. And, and then I also run into people who um, have other traditions they're drawing on that uh, I, I just learn a lot from. I mean, just this last week, I was with uh, Jewish friends and uh, Muslim friends and uh, a Hindu friend in D.C., and um, talking about you know issues in our public life that are that, that are really pressing on lots of communities, and uh, as I listen to them talk about how in their tradition um, their faith doesn't allow them to ignore these things, uh, in, in many ways I feel like it challenges me um, to be a better Christian. Yeah, I, do you become like kind of a spiritual guide for some of those people that aren't in other traditions that? Like, do they, do you kind of wind up? Well, I understand my vocation uh, in the world as a pastoral vocation. So I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a prophet, not like, not a prophet, a pastor. Because I think those two things are often, they're often pitted against each other. Uh, Frankly, I think to do either one well, you have to, um, you have to take seriously the tensions of the other. I always remember this story when William Sloan Coffin was at Yale. he preached a sermon against the Vietnam War one time, and uh, there was a retired four-star general uh, in the pew uh, who was a member of that you know, university chapel. And uh, on the way out the door, uh, he said to Coffin, um, I almost got out and got up and walked out during your sermon. And Coffin said, why didn't you? And the general said to him, um, because I couldn't forget 
even as much as I hated what you were saying, I couldn't forget that when my wife was dying, you were with me the whole time. Right? So the pastoral and the prophetic are always connected. You, you, uh, I mean, if you're involved in, you know, movement work and, you know, you're, you're on the front lines protesting or going to jail with people, you're inevitably there with people who care about this for some reason. And it's usually because it's impacted their family or their friends in very direct ways. And those are pastoral issues. And they so, probably also got all this hangups of people. Not that There's probably, you're ready to do addiction issues or people that they just can't figure out how to make their marriage and family work. And, they, and, and it, it, that doesn't stop, right? I mean, these kinds of human issues where and some people get involved in protests just because they're angry yeah and anger by you know by itself can destroy you a lot of people are depressed so yeah the the healing of the world is inevitably tied up with our own personal healing and our our own journeys towards understanding ourselves so yeah i i, I think i have to show up however prophetic my work might be i have to show up as a pastor you talk about in the book this guy Jeffries, right? Pastor Jeffries, who's in Dallas. Who he, didn't he write to him and his church, "Make America Great Again"? That's right. Yeah, they performed that at the <clears> Kennedy Center. <throat> he wrote. I can't sing it for you. I'm sorry. I have not learned the tune. I, I don't know the tune either. Um, he wrote a book. I, I didn't realize this until like last year. He wrote a book about two years before Trump was elected. Yeah. Uh, our twilight's last gleaming. And in it, you know, Martin Luther says, I'd rather have, if I'm sick, I'd rather have a a, a Muslim surgeon than a Christian butcher. Okay. Like I, you know, and, and, and same thing in statecraft, he'd rather have somebody that's, and so Jeffrey says, no, that's not good enough. Mm. We have to elect cr- not just Christians, but Christians with a philosophical worldview yeah. to save the nation. Then two years later, yeah. He abacks Trump, which it was, it's got to be the least religiously fluent president maybe we've ever had. I mean, I, I, I like of either party. I mean, the guy, it's Trump just doesn't have an ear for religion. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, yeah. you know, he's got an ear for rallies and, and, and nationalist piety, but he, he's not the kind of guy you, who, who would seem to understand much about Christianity, right? Like, I mean, when they asked him, when, uh, uh, John, uh, Harl, Heilman asked him, you know, well, you were more an Old Testament or a New Testament guy. He said, I'd say 50-50. You know, like, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, Trump just doesn't know how to talk about this. How do you, like, this is astounding, right? <clears throat> I mean, this is astounding on some level, right? That somebody can go from, yeah. and again, you mentioned in your book. Yeah, but of course, the narrative that gets developed is that, you know, he's the King Cyrus and God uses, you know, the it, ungodly people. This is from the, from the Old Testament when the Jews were in exile. Yeah, and this pagan king brought yeah. them back to the promised land. He's like the King Cyrus. He's letting everybody say Merry Christmas. Yeah, so it is worth it is worth observing how quickly the narrative can shift because what it makes clear is that the narrative, the, the what I call the distorted moral narrative, has always been about propping up a particular agenda, right? And that's why I think it's important to go back and ask in the be- like in the beginning of this particular coalition that we're talking about, this coalition of people who, for religious reasons, are supporting the current president. If you go back to the beginnings of that coalition, that coalition was formed between operatives of the new right and at that time, mostly white Baptist people who Jerry Falwell was bringing on board and was formed specifically to push back against the political agenda of the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, right? And if that is the agenda, and that's the reason why government is bad, and that's the reason you know why we need to mobilize religious voters, then that will continue 
be the purpose of the narrative, however much the narrative has to shift. And if Donald Trump is currently willing to get behind that agenda and be its representative, and if he's able to you know, rally the necessary parts of the coalition to get those people out, then the people who believe in that agenda will stick with him no matter what he does. I mean, he's right about that. He, he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue. And these people would say, you know, God is using him. Uh, you know, thank God God can use a murderer. It, it, I've had um, David French on the podcast a few times, who's an evangelical guy, politically probably is a, of a different stripe than you are, but he's a never Trumper. I mean, he and he's really mm-hmm. called out conservatives. Yeah. And he has said uh, on the on the podcast that, that one of the reasons he thinks that the evangelical right was so easily kind of seduced by Trump is because he said, you know, because this sort of cultural left, the, the, the privileged kind of cultural left, has so much power in institutions in our country, like like yeah. education, Hollywood, things like this, uh, media, that they're not as impressed by the glitz of, the, of a White House visit or something like this. Like, they're not. But he says, you know, because the evangelical power brokers have kind of been outside that, now you got reality TV, Trump, the biggest celebrity, you know, and he's yeah. t- that they're a little more. He thinks, and these are his tribe. He would say he thinks some of these evangelical uh, spiritual leaders that have a kind of political audience. He says he thinks they're a little more easily seduced by this stuff than you know, you know people who are used to a, a little more attention from elite institutions. Do you think there's something to that? Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, I just think that that's a faux populism. You know, it's a it's ultimately a trick. I, I I believe that because I'm a real populist, I think. I, mean, I, 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 think, I think, you know, uh, I was raised by mostly poor white people. I grew up among mostly poor white people. I've lived my whole adult life among mostly poor black people. And culturally, like, I think we have a lot in common. Like, we love all the same food. Uh, you, you go back, I mean, I, I appreciate what Ken Burns has done with this country music documentary that was on PBS this fall, because you look at the history of country music, like we have the same cultural roots. Like we put the banjo and the fiddle together and this created kind of American folk country music. So we have a lot in common, but what racism has done is used over and over again throughout our history. It's used a faux populism to rally white people together and to have white people pretend or believe this myth that somehow they're connected to the elite white power holders in a way that benefits them. When, you know, from the suppression of Bacon's Rebellion all the way up to the present, uh, this has not benefited most white people. And I think uh, a kind of populism that really uh, leans in to the way that, um, and again, I mean, David is right. Uh, Democrats have, have uh, sold out poor folks as much as Republicans have uh, in, in recent history. So I, I don't think Democrats get a pass on this, but we need a populism that can challenge both established political parties in this country and the cultural institutions that uh, are aligned with the so-called left and the right. That's why we need a moral movement in this country. And I think the only possibility of saving democracy in the moment we're in is for the poor and marginalized Black, white, brown, uh, 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 immigrant, and uh, native-born folks uh, coming together and saying, we want an agenda that actually builds up the good of the whole. That's what we're trying to do in the Poor People's Campaign. And uh, the the work that I'm trying to do with the Revolution of Values is to say that that is a, a, a deeply Christian imagination. Now, other people might have other reasons for doing something like that, but I think people who read the Bible 
have good reason for trying to build a moral fusion coalition that can lift up the good of the whole. I think it's what Jesus would want us to be doing. And the people who've used our Bible to convince people that that is somehow socialist or liberal or, 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 or something crazy have, have actually misread the Bible. You're a guy that, as you said, has lived and been raised by a, a non-elite group of folks. I mean, you, you, you know, you lived, you were raised by poor white people. You spent a lot of time in, in poor and black working class communities. But you, you're a guy kind of of letters. I mean, you've done some advanced education. You're a really gifted writer. You read widely. Do, do you ever feel like a sort of psychologically like attention, like a betrayal? Like, hey, man, I'm like, do I still fit in like down on the farm? Like, do I, you, know, do you ever... Do you ever have kind of a torn loyalty, like, hey, like, man, like, have I become sort of uh, uh, too big for our britches? Or do you, do you ever, like, ha- have any of those internal tensions? Because part of your life, you spend so much time working for and with the people that that, that reared you. And yet also some of your life is lived at, at pretty high-flying intellectual and critical yeah. levels. I mean, how does that, is there tensions for you in your own personal story? With that? Well, that, I'll, I'll be honest <clears throat> with you. Um, I would have room for you lie. I I love the people I grew up with and I love the people who raised me. I always I always respected uh, people who work hard every day. Uh, But actually, I uh, sought an education uh, because um, I worked in the fields as a teenager and um, and it was kind of out of desperation. I was really bad at it. Like, like the first farmer that ever hired me just cussed me to no end because I, I was hoeing one row of corn and I was stepping on the row behind me. So I like ruined as much corn as I was hoeing. And uh, and I, I just realized, like, I don't think I can survive this way. So, <laughs> you you were a hustler. He's like, I got to get a hustle. Yeah, I needed a hustle. Um, and um, but, you know, uh, I, I've learned a lot from uh, the academy. I've learned a lot from. Uh, the institutions of, you know, public discussion that we have. Uh, I have never met, you know, at whatever level in our society, uh, I've never met people who work harder than the people who raised me. And in so many ways, um, I, what I do in public life as a writer, you know, as somebody trying to to, to talk about what we share in common, uh, I hope I can do on behalf of people who I really do believe have been sold out. And um, uh, yeah, there's tensions. I mean, I, you know, um, I write books and the people uh, I'm talking about, a lot of them don't like to read books. Uh, um, I have a brother who I usually send my books to and uh, he tells me he leaves them on the back of the toilet in the bathroom and he glances at them every once in a while when he's sitting there. Because I think you spend all this time writing a book and you're a good writer and, and it, it's a labor of love like this, you know, holding what I'm holding in my hands here. Like it, it represents blood, sweat, tears, time, thing, you know, like and, and you. I mean, this is a, a, a picture of you. Like, is it hard when he says that? Well, no, that's it's my craft, and I don't I don't pretend that uh, uh, we have the same craft. Uh, I, I think he does appreciate it. Um, you know, we started a business together, and he still um, does it. Uh, he landscapes uh, big projects. Uh, you know, lays out land, builds walls. He likes to show me pictures of what he builds, and uh, 
you know, I, I don't claim that I could do it or that I entirely understand it. And uh, is he a Trump Trump guy? Oh, certainly, yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. He's a small business owner in rural North Carolina. Uh, he thinks that you know this tax cut that uh, Trump and McConnell put through, you know, is the best thing for the economy, and uh, and he's um, uh, certainly buys into the narrative. So yeah, we have deep disagreements about all of that, but um, but I respect his craft. And he respects mine, even though he comes to very different conclusion for his reason. That's nice that he really can respect <clears throat> your craft, though, because that's not everyone could do that. I mean, especially because you it'd be one thing if you shared a lot of common values. Well, and this is why I, I mean, I can't write uh, while I take racism very seriously in all the ways that we were talking about earlier. I can't write off the so-called Trump supporters as just racist. Right. Um People have been given reasons that they are able to narrate and justify to themselves uh, that allow them to feel very good about things that hurt other people, right? And that um, I think the only way to overcome that is to build power among people who recognize that these things are hurting them. And uh, we need to be able to do that in ways that we don't uh, hate the people who are in coalition with the folks who are holding on to power. Because um, as a matter of fact, um, those, these people are still going to be our neighbors. They're still going to be our brothers. And uh, uh, part of the reason I'm a Christian is that um, I've just come to believe that, you know, all of us are uh, twisted and messed up in one way or another. And if we can't learn to receive love in such a way that gives us some capacity to love beyond sort of the you know limits of what we think is even good and right, then uh, I don't think we've learned to love our enemies. Yeah. One of the things I appreciate about your work is, is I think that you are sensitive to these issues. I mean, some scholars call them antagonisms, right? Where everything is just, it, we, we, we believe stuff, not so much in a positive way, but in a negative way. We believe in this view of the Bible because we're against this, or we have this view of politics because we're against these people. And, yeah. and the tribalism... <clears throat> And our culture has become suffocating, right? Where you feel like everything from your fast food restaurant to this is everything is some, in some kind of tribe. And it, it seems like with all your passions for a sort of revolutionary politic, you, you also like, like generally, I think people that are that are passionate in these ways, left or right, actually, mm -hmm. tend to be very tribal, tend to sort of camp. But you seem to be somebody who, who doesn't want to be tribal. And, and that, I mean, that's, that, that strikes me as kind of a unique thing in a lot of the cultural discussions that are going on around some of the issues you write about, because uh, oftentimes those kinds of issues increase the tribalism and you're trying to sort of uh, work uh, with an edgy politic that it would also not be tribal. I mean, how does, is that intentional or, or, or is that more temperamental for you? Well, I think it's a result of, uh, I think it's a result of my being Christian. At least that's how I understand it. I, uh, um, to me, um, believing good news has to mean you believe that uh, this gospel can save us from the things that are destroying us, and that that is a challenge to every way that we participate in what is destroying us, but that that is actually at least potentially good news for everybody, right? So to, I understand that kind of universalism to be uh, inherent in the gospel message. Uh, I don't claim to know about ultimate reality. Uh, you know, that universalism conversation is, uh, to me, it's just sort of beyond the purview of our knowledge. I don't know. I don't know how to know whether or not you're saved. Um, 
we'll, we'll have to we'll have to work well, out our. I faith. mean, I think most of my friends can say it's obvious I'm not saved, but I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm an easy case. I mean, I'm an easy case. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't. So anyway, I don't argue too much about universalism in that sense but to me uh that the gospel is universal that is that it uh that it claims to be good news for all people and that therefore you know has to hold out some hope for all people um i think that's pretty core to the message i read a biography a few years ago of fdr and and one of the things the points the biographer was making was that Hoover was not a man of privilege like mm-hmm. FDR was. And yeah. that Hoover kind of his his politics were sort of I made it. And yeah. because I made it, this ethic of hard work and sort of the sort of the you know spirits animal spirits of capitalism and stuff, this is good. And the biographer's making the point that FDR's like getting stricken with polio and these things is it made him understand, I mean, I, I don't know the author exactly this word, but grace. And and yeah. it helped him rediscover his own Christian roots, FDR. And so part of his argument was FDR was a man of privilege who got stricken with some misfortune through no fault of his own and then just looked around, oh my gosh, who else is getting struck with misfortune, man? And that that sort of animated a politics where he wanted to sort of uh, have a gracious approach to to people's misfortune where because he because of the these things that happen to us that are often you know not of our own making and and, and you just kind of there's because I, I wonder because you're talking about in this book reclaiming public faith for the common good and, and how do we get grace back into the because we have call-out culture and 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 no. shame and we're, we're we're maybe more permissive but we're less forgiving, right? There's no, it seems like every, I mean, President Obama talked about this recently about how, man, just like, like we can be passionate without judgmental purity tests all the time. I mean, how, how do you, we get this kind of, or is there a place for this kind of notion of grace in, 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 in a kind of public faith? Like, do you think that would move the ball forward in the culture if we could, if we could figure out a talk like that? You know, what you're saying makes me think about, uh, I mean, FDR's experience is critical, uh, but so is what's around him, right? Yeah. So he has a he has a wife who's going to the south, and you know, literally insisting that gatherings are integrated. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is like he becomes president in the midst of the social gospel, right? And so there is a there is a movement of people who are trying to live out faith in a way that contributes to the common good such that yeah, you know, he didn't you have to interpret his experience alone. Like he, yeah, had, right. Right. He had people about more than any individual while the individual yeah. experience certainly does matter. And, and that to me is what um, I think our work together needs to be in the current context. We, the only hope of interjecting both grace and truth into public life is to build movements where grace and truth are real, right? So we we need to tell the truth about these systemic issues, but we also need to acknowledge that uh, part of the way a majority of this country has uh, remained sort of exploited is by being pitted against one another, by being divided, right? And so while we are insistent about truth, we also need to find ways to tell people stories and to bring people together in such a way that we recognize how much we really do have in common. And um, yeah, and so in that way, I think it's deeply important that we have spaces of radical grace and truth telling where um, people are able to learn the history of how uh, black and white and brown folks have worked together at different times. And those coalitions have been able to build uh, real change. Uh, The 
you know, the, the, the new deal with some of that, but there, you know, there has been an ongoing conversation about fusion politics and the morality of that in our public life. And that's what I think is just essential that we claim in this moment and that, and that Christians recognize that, you know, that's a way of being faithful. Um, the, the new biography of FDR that's out is called A Christian and a Democrat. That's what and he told us. It's on the shelf here. Which yeah, I, he told his yeah. press secretary once when they asked, they asked him, uh, you know, what, what should we say about your faith? He said, say, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I'm a Democrat. Uh, it, it's hard to say that today. Yeah. Yeah. Got, and, and part of what I want to say is that, like, we just need to create spaces where people can say that, not as a blanket endorsement of the Democratic Party, but as a way of saying that, you know, you can be Christian and not be aligned with this agenda of the religious right. Jonathan, you've <clears throat> written a great book, and thanks for writing it and, and talking about it with me. And I, I just want to say, you have a contagious spirituality. Like, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely thing about you. It's, you. You express yourself in ways that I think uh, just make faith attractive. And thank you for that. Well, thank you. You have a lovely way of Drawing someone into a conversation for an hour and 13 minutes this time. We can talk that long. <laughs> we can talk to you all day, man. And uh, blessings in your work. Thank you. Bless you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jonathan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Revolution of Values. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.